The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down the torch and monkey wrench and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 298 with guest Gael Fratu, recorded live Monday, December 10th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training, DNR TV style, on DVD with Sahil Malik. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy, Carl Franklin. Hey, thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here with you again. On this beautiful Thursday, lovely, lovely New England weather we're having here actually sucks. How's your weather, Richard? About the same. Yeah. It's December, you know. Kind of sucks. Kind of sucks. But then, you know, the the rest of the year also sucks. Well, so, uh, look, no, Christmas no, is coming, good. and <laughs> the kids are excited, and we're spending all our money. We just want to have some snow. That's all we want. And none of this teasing us with a little snow, and then it rains, and then it goes away. It lasts, the snow, we had some snow, it lasted like five minutes. Seriously. <laughs> Five minutes, it was all ice and sleep. All right. Let's uh, get to Better Know Framework. So, fun one this time? Yeah. Okay, what is it? This is the uh, system.resources.iResourceReader interface. So, you know what resources are, right? Yeah. Yeah, we all know what they are. They're these little blobs, either text or uh, different language text or images or things that just exist in these files out there. And you can usually read a, use a resource reader or a resource writer, just the ones that the, the defaults to, to read and write those. But if you have um, a, a resource file that was written using a customized writer and reader and you want to you know, read and write your own files in your own format, then you can implement the iResource Reader interface, uh, which provides a base functionality to read data from a resource file. And there's also an iResource Writer. So, uh, so there you go. You want your resource files in SQL Server? Bada boom. No problem. Yeah. So it's not that you're really changing up the format of a resource file. It's just being able to record it somewhere else. 
Well, if the resource file was was written using a customized resource writer, uh, then you want to use a, the the reader as well. So it just gives you a, it just gives you an opportunity to control what happens when you use the resource reader and writer. So there you go. Excellent. Have fun with that, Richard. You got an email for us? I do indeed, and you know, not every email is love, and this is definitely one of them. Hey, Carl and Richard, I just got done listening to your open source DNR episode, and though it was a bundle of laughs, I have to admit that I never heard more people get so cynical over a development paradigm, namely open source, in my life. Oh, it wasn't that bad. No, I didn't think so either, but eh, give the guy his opinion here. Okay. The whole show can best be summed up by the comment Richard made at 3727, what are you saying when you say open source, that I need more grief in my life? You might as well have called show 296 the Why We Hate Open Source show, because it's basically what I was hearing from you. Which is funny, because I put four people on the panel that were very pro-open source. They're, most of them were making their living from open source. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe, maybe a little sensitive. Maybe. Maybe. Just a little. I will admit that at 57 minutes, that one guy was talking about he was able to get an FTP server running due to some abandoned open source project. And for the briefest of moments, you all appear to be talking about open source in a positive light. But let's be honest, the majority of the show is the flavor of let's rag on open source. I totally disagree. Yeah, well, we, you know, we were holding it up as a, as as what it is. I mean, it, we didn't have an agenda one way or the other. No, of course we don't. But And honestly, when you have a four people on the panel that are using open source a serious way, you've got to ask those critical questions. That's right. I think from our point of view, uh, we have to represent the audience who's wondering why they would use open source. It's not automatically love. Right. You have to just make some clear distinctions as to why things are good. And I thought we made a few great points there. But thanks for that email. We do read them all. Good and bad. You bet. So you got an email, send it to uh, .net rocks at franklins.net. And uh, let's see. How about the uh, SharePoint video? Sahil, oh, yes. Sahil Malik's uh, DVD that we're selling now at franklins.net. It's um, nine plus hours of DNR TV style uh, training in SharePoint. And uh, lots of topics, a lot more than we covered on DNR TV. It's also at 1280 by 1024. So it's a little bit bigger, nicer. The audio is obviously nicer. And um, there's a sample uh, video that you can check out at www.franklins.net. And also there's a detailed table of contents. So you can get a real idea for what you're getting into here. We also have site licenses available. Check that out. Also, the guys at uh, Infusion are still looking for a few good developers. They're, uh, they're really just having a field day with our listeners we got so many more listeners that have moved to New York because of these guys. But uh, they're offering you uh, to move you to New York City, to work in an exciting field with some very creative people, to uh, live rent-free in an apartment in Manhattan for a year and do the tour. And if you're interested in that, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. And yes, shrinkster.com is now back online. Woo-hoo. We took it over, and it's going very smoothly. So please enjoy. Well, let us bring on our guest today. Uh, Gael Fratur is the founder and the project leader of PostSharp. He's a Microsoft certified solution developer for Microsoft.net and has an advanced knowledge of Oracle Server, Microsoft SQL Server, Tibco middleware, and Unix platforms. Besides maintaining PostSharp, he is currently helping a Web 2.0 startup building high availability and scalable solutions. So, Richard, you should have a lot to talk about. You bet. 
Uh, before that, he worked on the back office systems of a mobile operator. And after completing an MSc in mathematical engineering in Belgium in 2001, he followed his Czech princess up to Prague, where they have lived so far. They got married and have two kids. Welcome, Gael. Thank you. Prague is beautiful, isn't it? It is, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh, Remy Caron and I and a couple of other friends went there, uh, and Stevie Forte was one of them. We went there right after the SDC conference in the spring, or no, it was in the fall. Like, it's all just a blur right, already. Right, right. And, uh, and we didn't see you anywhere, Gal. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a, there is a big American company in software development, a big .NET shop in Prague. It is Monster. Right. They have uh, hundreds of .NET programmers. Maybe the, the biggest .NET shop in Prague is, uh, it's Monster. Yeah, we met a, we met several of the guys from Monster in Prague and mm -hmm. uh, talked about the wonders of developing software. Well, let's get right into PostSharp. Tell us about it. So PostSharp is uh, a tool for for developers, and it enables to make more of out of less code, actually. And the idea is uh, when when you want, for instance, a method to be to be transactional, uh, don't use five lines of code to do it. Uh, it's easier to put just a, a custom attribute to the method and say, this is a transaction, or more precisely, this, this, this method is a transaction boundary which requires a new transaction. So PostSharp is a, is a tool that, that allows you to, um, to annotate your, your code and in the background during compilation, it will add new behaviors to your code. So it so it will in fact uh, so edit the assembly after compilation transparently. Okay. So actually, funny you d describe transactions that way. That reminds me of the way we did it in Com, where we just used to set a property to say exactly. this this particular uh, component requires a new transaction. Exactly. Um, so the difference is that uh, with 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 PostSharp, you can do it with any method. You don't have to derive from uh, the from the enterprise component class, right. or you you don't have to derive it from Marshall by by reference object uh, like with other frameworks. This kind of uh, of transformations is called aspect oriented programming mm -hmm. because actually uh, transactions are one uh, one aspect of of programming. And the whole idea is to keep that sort of infrastructure code out of your main code and right. use it in a, uh, add it in a different way. Yes, yes, exactly. And attributes are a really good way to do that. Yeah. Um, the idea is, is, to, is to separate functional code, so code solving business problems like customer management, product management, and so on, to so to separate this uh, functional code from non-functional code, which is logging, transaction management, uh, persistence, caching, and so on. Yeah. So the the idea, as Richard said, is to to keep your code cleaner, so that when you're working on the solutions, you you don't have a bunch of plumbing code. Everybody has to write plumbing code to some degree. I mean, the, the framework made it easier, and there's certainly a lot less of it now. But you still have to do that sort of maintenance code a lot. And and I guess what you're looking at here is when you open up your project and you look at your, your code, you're focused on 
what is this thing doing for the from the business point of view? Not necessarily uh, all that gook clogging it up. Yeah, that, that's it. If you take a, a typical business business method, you will have uh, say the business the business function in that, and then you will have four lines for logging, and then you will have five lines for transaction management, right, and so on. So if you take uh, if you count the lines, there is maybe 30% of functional code uh, and 70% of non of non-functional code. Right. It is in in uh, worst uh, worst scenario, of course, this this rate. Well, in recognizing that every line of code you write is code you need to maintain, code you need to debug. I, I'm a, I'm going jumping on the transaction issue again because. How many times have I been trying to solve a problem where really what it was is we hadn't properly assigned the transactional boundary? So the code was totally functional, but we weren't following the transactional rules, and one part wasn't rolling back properly. Yeah, there is a, um, a common term for for this. It is uh, cross-cutting concerns. We use this, this term in uh, in software engineering to to say that some concerns like login, transaction management, and so on cross-cut all uh, functional concerns. And in, uh, in a software engineering, we, we try to separate concerns. This is the principle of separation of, of, uh, of concerns. And it is, it is difficult to uh, separate concerns for um, these, these cross-cutting ones. And um, for, for, this, for this purpose, uh, we have aspect oriented frameworks like Postsharp, or you have other other frameworks doing uh, mostly the same but differently with their own uh, pros and cons. Now, I want to drill into a bunch of different aspects and so forth, but before we go down that path, uh, let's talk a little bit about how Postshark came to be. And it, it's freely downloadable, right? I don't have to buy it. Uh, it is free. It is it is open source. Uh, it is released under uh, three different licenses, the, the, and um, the freest one is uh, the Mozilla license, uh, which you can use even for commercial purposes. You, you don't have to uh, uh, to make your own code open source if you use PostSharp. There is no uh, propagation of, of of the license like in GPL. But if you want to use GPL components, which is quite rare in the .NET ecosystem, but you can because PostSharp is is also published under GPL. Oh, I see. Huh. So you actually have that's an interesting solution to just right. have multiple licenses. Yeah, we were just talking about multiple licenses on the open source panel. Right. Um, let's start with some of the the basic AOP aspect oriented programming. Uh, Features dependency injection um, being one of them. Dependency injection is, is not is not directly related to um, to AOP, but you you can simplify your 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 work using using AOP. Uh, yeah. So I have a, a a kind of test code on my on my computer uh, where you can uh, just declare fields with a custom attribute. And you say this is a dependency, and then the framework can uh, can initialize the field automatically, and you don't have to use reflection, you don't have to to use to use uh, special constructors. Yeah. So uh, 
with uh, with with AOP you can do um, things like le, the the Google Google Dependency Injection Framework. I don't remember the name of this oh, framework. Oh, interesting! Right. Uh, you can do something very very similar because uh, PostSharp can do for you the code that will uh, that will actually inject the dependency from from the framework. Um, but I'm I'm not sure it was your your question actually. You know what? Maybe I should phrase the question a little bit different. Um, yeah. So so I guess Post Sharp Laos is the AOP framework, as you said, and um, let's let's talk about some of the the features of Post Sharp Laos. Um, okay. Uh, the the I think the the most interesting feature and the most uh, what what makes PostSharp Laos very very different is uh, simplicity. You have a very smooth learning curve. Um, PostSharp Laos doesn't use all the academic all all the academical concepts of aspect-oriented programming. It used the vocabulary of every developer. For instance, an aspect is a normal custom attribute. There is nothing you can you 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 have to have to learn. You just have to make a new a new custom attribute and to implement some some methods that that will be invoked at runtime. So, for instance, the most the most common uh, custom attribute is on method boundary aspect, and it defines four methods, which is on entry, on exit on exception and on success. And all you have to do is to make your your own custom attribute derived from on method boundary aspect attribute. Oh, and interesting. Then, and then you can override on entry and write your your old on entry. So even handler, for instance, um, tracing some message or defining the beginning of a transaction in scope Okay. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, attributes are one of those things that you're, uh, I think doesn't come up in everyday development unless you actually think about how to how to uh, use them effectively and you have a, a broader strategy. It's not just something that you that I think most developers will just go ahead and use. And uh, it's interesting that you're using them with with the object oriented features of inheritance and stuff that. Uh, yeah, that makes yeah. makes a lot of sense. I think developers are are used to think to custom attributes are pure annotations without any behavioral part. Right. For instance, when when you use uh, a custom attribute for uh, for XML serialization, it is purely information right. for for the serializer. The difference with uh, post sharp laws is that this this attribute really changes your code. Right. If you if you take the code before and after post compilation and you use for instance uh, reflector to look at your code, you will see that the methods of your custom attributes have been injected in your business methods. Yeah. So uh, I think for the from the point of view of the first time user, it is it is very uh, smooth to see that they just have to code some some um, some. Uh, uh, some custom attributes you don't have to you don't need a an XML file on the side. Uh you just install PostSharp on the platform, you just 
users add the library to your project, create a new a new custom attribute and build, and that's all. Uh, I think this is this is really the the, um, the biggest differentiator. The result of 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 that is that it works with plain C sharp, plain VBnet, or G, J sharp, and so on. Um, because I don't need uh, a new syntax. Yeah, it's not language dependent. In other words, yes, it is yeah. not. It is not language dependent uh, because other so other implementations use language extensions and so on. Uh, this is not the case of of Post Sharp. You you really use uh, .NET object oriented programming generally, and this this has plenty of of uh, of, of advantages, of course. Now it looks to me, uh, Gail, like there's. Two products here. There's the Post Sharp Core, and then there's Post Sharp Laos. And I can't use Laos without Core. Yes, technically Laos is a plugin to Post Sharp Core. Okay. Uh, because I wanted to separate two concerns. It is the high level use of the platform for the end user, management of custom attributes, and so on, and low level is is working with .NET assemblies, with um, the MSIL representation, and so on. So Laos is relatively small. It's maybe a few thousands of lines of code, but it relies on PostSharp Core, uh, which is much, much bigger. And PostSharp Core can be used to make, to make other solutions uh, based on post-compilation transformation of assemblies. Uh, so I know an object relational mapper using PostSharp as a, as a backend. And the ability to inject yourself into the compilation process so you have an opportunity to do your transformations. Yes, exactly. So you, all that stuff's in the core. It's, it's interesting to me that, that this all happens post-compilation. You know, because it's not the way you typically think of toolkits that you want to use in a, in a development environment. Right. Normally, it's just code you're adding into your, your method. Right. You make a reference to it. It gets compiled and it runs. How does, how does debugging work or does it? Debugging wo uh, works quite transparently. Um, if you use, use Laos and step into a method uh, that has an aspect, you will, you will get at the at the so beginning of the method, and if you if you do again step into, you will get in the aspect, okay, and then we will step out back in the method, go to the end of the method, and when you do step into, you will be in in the own success method and so on. So uh, debugging is is uh, works transparently. There is no change from from user point of view. And this was one of the one of, one of the differentiating points uh, with other systems is that this works quite well. What? Um, how does that work, though? I mean, are is there some special magic happening, like to hook the debugger and and then execute the code? And and for that matter, what's the benefit of post compilation uh, injection? Um, to have to have the debugger working, there is absolutely no uh, no magic in that. It is it is really 
really only rewriting symbols for the debuggers, you know, the PDB file. So I, so I, I rewrite it and I just say that um, some part of code is non-user uh, and that's all I have to do. It is, it is really clean. There is, there is no trick in that. Oh, that's good. And it's, it's one of the, 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 um, the good things in, in PostSharp is that it creates um, a plain .NET assembly without any trick, without, without special features enabled. You, you, you don't need to, to load complex, uh, complex systems, subsystems at runtime. You can use existing tools because it is just plain assembly, which is a little modified. Okay. Well, and, and all your fundamentally, you know, your available aspects are your hooks. It, these these event points where you're jumping in and, and running new code. Are you actually able to grab those events, make those uh, connections after the code is compiled? Or are you intercepting mid-compilation? Um, what I do is that in the core is disassembling all methods and uh, injecting new uh, new instructions. Uh, so there is there is a um, a lot of tricks to 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 understand the method structure, you know. And I have, for instance, to change every return instruction to a go to, and it is not so easy to uh, to add a catch handler to a method and so on. Right. Um, so this is this is done by by PostSharp Core. So based on this. On this analysis, I can't inject instructions into into code at the proper location. And you mentioned cache methods, and I, I love to go down that path because I think it's a very interesting area. But just to sort of throw that out there, what's the overhead of adding this code? Uh, how much performance is it costing me to for the to insert this way as opposed to just coding it yourself directly into the method? Um, there are two. Two, two kinds of uh, performance point of view. The first one is compile time performance. Of course, it is it is expensive. So the, it takes longer to compile the application. Yes, uh, I have, that's a uh, one time thing. Yep. So I have a, a community member telling that it 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 takes uh, twice the time to process uh, a big a big system. Okay. Um, so you have to, you have to pay something in performance at compile time. The second problem is at runtime. If you right. use strictly PostSharp core and that you code yourself the instructions, you know, that you inject the instruction console.write line, you can make uh, excellent code you, because you can choose exactly what you know and uh, you can make handy tuned code. Uh, but if you want to to use PostSharp Laos where, so it is easy and so on, uh, then it is slower because for every call of the aspect method, there, so, so it is needed to create a new, a new object. It is, it is required also to box all parameters of the method right. to an array and so on. Uh, so you cannot use PostSharp to, uh, to log uh, an application which, which does, that does, for instance, numerical computation. This, this this would not be adequate because of the heap effect would be much too high. But if you want to uh, to look uh, at the cursor level of granularity, you won't see the difference. 
And if if you if you compare the postcard to competing solutions, you will see that there is a, a lesser overhead with postcard because um, because I don't use um, you know remoting proxies and so on. What's yeah, a, yeah, I think that's a fairly key point here is that you are incorporating your code yeah. into the same assembly. So yeah. there's there's uh, you're getting rid of the out of process calls by your approach. Yes, it is all in process. It is all uh, in the same thread. Right. Um, the GIT compiler can inline eventually uh, the aspects. Uh, and also, I I did not uh, spend much time in performance optimization in the first release, but in the next releases. The post compiler will be a little smarter and will not generate all the stuff if, if you so if you only use a little of of this. Tell me about the lifetime of an aspect. What's the what is the uh, life cycle like? This is this also very very specific to post sharp. Um, so so aspects have two two lives. They have one life at compile time. And one life at runtime, and this is a real difference with PostSharp is that the aspects are instantiated at compile time. So your constructor is invoked at compile time inside the post compiler, and then it is serialized inside the target assembly, you know, with mm-hmm. the binary formatter. Mm-hmm. And at runtime, it is deserialized and it can be invoked, and it is really uh, a great difference. Because at compile time, you can already do some job. For instance, if you if you had to compute something something difficult at compile time, um, yeah, you can do it at at compile time if the result of the computation depends only on uh, metadata of the assembly, name of the methods, for instance, number of arguments, and so on. Typically, when you when you have to to generate a string to log to the login subsystem. This string is quite complex to generate. You can do it at compile time. You can save it in a, in a, so in an instance field of the aspect. And at runtime, you will have it available. And this allows to make, to make quite interesting things. Um, you can also, at compile time, validate how the custom attribute has been used. And I think it is it is something quite new in in .NET that custom attributes can have a validation method that tells the compiler, hey, you cannot use that method on static. Uh, you cannot use this this custom attribute on static methods. You can use it only on instance methods. Okay. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 tools update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. 
As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. So uh, what are some of the other aspects uh, in Laos? So we talked already about the on-method boundary aspect, de defining on-entry, on-exit, on-success, and, and on-exception. Uh, these aspects modify the method to which it is applied. That means that you cannot, for instance, apply this, this aspect to a method of the framework because you don't have, you cannot modify the assembly of the framework. But what if you want to do it? You can, but using a different aspect, which is on method invocation. Ooh. And this aspect has a single method called on invocation. And all you get in the event arguments object is a delegate to the method being called and the array of arguments. So actually, you can, you can catch any method call in any, so to any assembly. So typically, if you want to lock all calls to the namespace system threading, because you know nobody can, can, uh, can code perfectly with, with that namespace, just with one line of code, you can, you can lock all calls. Uh, third aspect type is method implementation. It is, it is quite a surprising aspect, but using this method implementation, you can define, for instance, stored procedures, you know, database hmm. stored procedures as external methods in C Sharp. That's interesting. And you will say that the handler for this, for this external method is my aspect. Huh. So, and I can see the power of that in, uh, I have this existing application that I don't want to touch, but I want to override some particular method and, uh, and add uh, a new capability to it. Yeah. So in that case, you, you, you just have to add a new aspect and you don't have to, to edit every, every class. You just say, I want to apply this, this, this aspect to all the methods having this name or in this namespace. Wow. So, so far, we talked about method-level aspects. There are also right. field-level aspects and type-level aspects. Field-level aspects allow to intercept, uh, load, and store operations on fields. Now, these are not properties. These are fields. It is a field because uh, from, the, yeah. Yeah, from the CLR point of view, there is no property. These are methods. Sure. Right. So... You can, for instance, add validators to, to fields. Or you can make your class transactional. You know, you can have an object which is in itself transactional, and you can make in-memory transactions. See, for instance, uh, the, 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 the block of uh, Ralph Westphal is doing an in-memory transaction system uh, for .NET. It is based on 
both sharp. You define the field, you think it is a field, but actually you store it in a dictionary. That's cool. And it, yeah, Ra- Ralph Westfall, and we've never had him on the show before. Oh, but he's, he's an RD. Yeah, and he was one of the guys who was really into object spaces. Yeah. Back when they still existed. So the idea, in, ca- in case of field level aspect, the idea is that a field is, is just uh, semantic. You know, it is just a storage location, and you, c- you can do get and load operations on that. And with PostSharp, you can change the implementation of the semantics. You can have your own get field, your own load field. This is the idea. I'm thinking purely from the listener's point of view, somebody who's saying, well, that's cool, but where's the practical application of this? So give me a scenario in which, in which this is uh, a, a desirable um, solution. Um, in a in a business application, sometimes you have uh, you have two copies of one object. You have um, the the committed copy, the so the copy of the object which which is equal to to the to the committed representation in the database. Okay. And you have the working copy, which is valid inside the current transaction or inside the current UI session. Right. And what you do when you when you click on the save button is that you copy the the working copy to the committed copy, and um, when you want to 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 implement this stuff manually, you have to you have to to code much much instruction by hand, uh, and with with PostSharp it is it is it is quite easy to to just to say. Uh, so when I do commit, you know, so the object is copied automatically there, or just to say that that uh, uh, the field is is not a field, but but it's actually two fields, and it is and it is hidden from from the business programmer. So I remember when when uh, making a graphical client, uh, so I had really to fight to 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 code such a behavior to be able to have in the in the user session a different object than the than, than the one in cache for instance so with transaction isolation it is this it's really useful and uh, um, I think we use it quite often in uh, in business applications well and a lot of times I look at uh, AOP and thing this is a, a mate that, well, I see two groups of people talking about this. One say uh, that AOP is only useful for testing and debugging, like making it dirt simple to instrument the system threading library so I can find out why my multi-threading code is killing. Without me. having to write, rewrite the code. Without yeah, going through the whole thing yeah. or just general logging and so forth. Right. The other group of people are the ones who say this is about me as a consultant stepping into an existing application and avoiding touching the code directly, but being able to slip in and around, learn how it works, and and make changes from a distance, essentially. Well, then, of course, there's just the whole logical decoupling thing, right? I mean, that's that's really what, what the power of using AOP in everyday uh, code is all about, isn't it? Yeah, so I think so. Um, but... We should make attention not not to overuse or to misuse AOP. It, right. It cannot it cannot solve the same problems or 
sometimes uh, I read in post forums users trying to solve using ALP things they should solve using normal object directed programming or with event handling and so on. Um, AOP is is not for uh, for every concern. There are still uh, <laughs> most of things uh, can be solved using using object oriented programming. Uh, I recommend AOP for uh, non functional requirements. Uh, some different people uh, recommend AOP also for functional requirements and his his really uh, so really invasive so in invasive aspects uh using using postsharp uh you are forced to design aspects so that so that aspects don't know their target code they don't know local variables but so uh pay attention not to not to misuse postsharp what right not to misuse aop and um Respect uh, software engineering principles. Respect separation of, of concerns. Um, in the Java ecosystem, it is a much, much longer known concept, and they have a lot of practice with it. And users come come with, with feedback that uh, it's more difficult to uh, to program with aspects because 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 aspects have to know the target code. They have to know the implementation of target methods and so on. And target methods have to know they will be affected. I think this is a very bad design. And um, when you plan to use AOP, I recommend to to design your your base code and your aspect code so that they don't know about each other. It's really important not to get completely messed uh, with a small change. All right, so I'm thinking about a scenario. Actually, this came up just recently in the field. I was talking to a group of folks about uh, recovering uh, from a cluster failover in SQL Server. This reality that if you if you have a database server fail and it's in a cluster, mm-hmm. there's still about a minute or so where the database won't serve transactions while it gets itself back in order. And you have to code for that. If you really want a seamless failover... You have to retry transactions. And yeah. one of the discussions we had around doing that was, is this something I could do as an aspect to add in the functionality to say, I want you to, the transactions failed. We think it's a cluster failover. I want you to retry the transaction. Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a good use case of, uh, of AOP. And and it, what I like about the AOP approach to this is this is throughout their entire code. It's it's cross cutting like you described before. It's everywhere, and they and you don't want to drop into each method that may be you know that may be accessing the database and have to add that same glob over and over again to retry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the aspect in that scenario then would be an on exception aspect. If you have to retry, it would be an on invocation aspect because. You will need to call the method again, right? So on 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 method invocation aspect. That's interesting because in the end you're handling a failure, but it's on exceptions only when you're not going to retry. Yes, because on exception means that it it adds a try catch, and you get the chance to you get a, a chance to do something in the catch block. Okay. Okay, but you don't have a, f- a for loop on the top of that. 
right? Or yeah, un, uh, do until kind of loop. Yeah. But the but with uh with it overriding the invocation, I can actually put a loop around this. Yeah. I imagine that would be good for debugging real time stuff, you know, which I've I've had a my hand in ever since I started programming. You know, well, and and it, like Gail said, the whole. Uh, monitoring system threading, I thought of you immediately, Mr. Franklin, yeah. because just being able to have a real-time log of what's going on when you're multi-threaded right. out. Right. I mean, I've written that stuff, but it usually involves code. <laughs> <laughs> what is good also is, is that you, you, can, you can add your aspect in one minute and remove it immediately. Right. Yeah, but lovely for diagnosing. I mean, as a, yeah. as a, in a consulting role to drop into somebody else's code and then quickly stick these features in, do a recompile, watch it run, and now you understand what's going on. You know, the, the trace, um, output is really good for that, but it, it sprinkles these little trace calls all over your code. And when you're trying to look at, you know, code that's tight in real time, you really don't want stuff, you know, getting in the way. Oh, no, I don't have to worry about that. You know, you're sort of like parsing it in your brain right. as you're debugging in your mind, just reading the code. And and I can see a clear advantage to getting rid of that stuff. Clear. I mean, you might not think it's such a big deal. I'll just skip over it. But, but you know, every line of code, now you have to evaluate, is this significant? Mm-hmm. And also, I think, I think diagnostic is a good start point uh, because you really you will probably remove it from the from the release so yeah. there is no product risk with that. Right. And when you start with a new technology, you very often don't want to take, you know, to commit to risky projects. You take a, you need a first, a first project to, to take confidence in, in the technology. And um, that's why diagnostic is a, it's a, Good um, start point to 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 AOP. Yeah, it sounds to me like people start out just with logging in AOP and gradually find other opportunities, uh, other cases. Uh, and and I guess the area that I really wanted to push on was the places where AOP should go into production, which is actually a better way to code those features. And I, the, the best one I've seen so far is transactional boundaries. But I know you mentioned caching at least once. Caching, yes. Because caching is, is um, the same problematic. You have, you have to compute a caching key based on, based on method parameters. Then you have to make a cache lookup. And right. if it is not in cache, you have to do the business function and at the end add it in cache. Re- Repopulate the cache. Yes, and that's it. You have you have an implementation pattern that you have to code tens of times. Yes, and you can you can just make one met- one aspect of that. Uh, you can implement a general way to encode the caching key based based on method parameters, and uh, you implement a cache lookup and cache populate, and that's it. And again, you're, it's not a lot of lines of code, but it decorates everything you do over and over and over again. Exactly. It's, it's maybe one, 100 times five lines of code. All right. I'll tell you a little story that's related to this uh, that Sean Walker, uh, the .NET nuke fame, related to me. And it was around ASP.NET caching, which I've been living and breathing lately. And they 
he figured out uh, with working with Kent Allstad that he actually had to test for the existence of the cash item twice. So when you have a very high velocity applications running, so there's multiple people requesting the same cash object at the same time. While that's going on, you, you, you've got the same pattern going where you're saying, is the cash object populated? No. Well, it's time to go populate it, but I don't want other people populating it at the same time. So I'll write a sync lock or I'll put a lock in place to stop other people from entering that code. So they now one execution is actually loading the cache item. Meantime, a bunch of others are trying to do the same thing. So they're all sitting at the lock. Yeah. And then when the first one finishes and the lock ends, all of the ones that are waiting now execute the code as well, but they execute it one at a time because they just reinstate institute the lock. So the important part was after the lock, now check to see if the cache item is populated again. And if it is, then great, just go get the cache item. So all those blocked ones will just use the existing cache item. I, th- I thought the cache object had some sort of locking built into it. Because you don't have to lock it like you do the application object in in old ASP. No, you don't. But you this that's not the issue here. The issue here is that the executing code currently believes... Yeah. The cache item is empty and it's going to go and try and repopulate right. so, it again. So when you actually execute the line of code to, to add or remove or check, that is a locked process. But in between that line of code and five lines down, that's not right. locked. So the, yeah. the funny part of the story and where I think the aspect oriented is very powerful is, so Sean figures this out. And in his open source project, he lays in everywhere this clever pair... Uh, pattern that actually does all that cache management correctly and puts it out there because it's open source and then for the next three months keeps getting people removing the extra if because it's obviously superfluous because they don't understand the code huh and 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 then checking it back in going yeah i moved that extra if it was everywhere i don't know why it was there. i clean i spent a day cleaning it oh. up i'm wondering <laughs> if if it had been in an aspect <laughs> So it hadn't been in the body code if it wouldn't have been the same problem. Oh, do you really have to put comments? Don't remove this code. Well, this is what they're doing, and (laughs) and people are removing it anyway because it's not intuitive. Until you're actually that deeply into the problem, you don't get why this is there. So I think there's a real powerful part about isolating it, hiding it. Good point. What do you think, Gail? Does that actually work in an aspect-oriented model? Would I be able to protect that, that bit of functionality? With AOP, uh, the developer should just think, oh, I need to uh, cache the result of this method. And they would just put a, just put an attribute. And, and they would not care about the implementation of the cache attribute. Right. They would care about telling the dependencies using the attribute, for instance, and so on. They would care about that. Um, but not, not about the implementation. You know, maybe we need to speak a little more about the implementation because I I don't know that I quite understand exactly how I would add this code in. So, um, you know, I've got I've got I got to write my generic caching handler, and then what's what's the process look like that connects that up to all of these methods? So, in in this case, uh, you could you could use, for instance, on method invocation. It, it so it will be the easier, not the more performant, but the easier. And um, so you add a new a new class for your project. You name the class uh, cache attribute, and you derive it from on method invocation attribute. You override the method um, on invocation, and there 
you get as a parameter event argument. And on event argument, there is, there is a property named delegate. And you get a delegate to the method being actually called. And you have a second method on the event arguments, and it is get arguments. And there, you get the, you get the, uh, the, the original arguments. And what you would do there is first, in the on, so in the on invocation method, you will first compute the caching key based on the method name and based on on the so on the input arguments. You would uh, check the cache, for instance, ASP.NET cache, and if it is not in cache, you would invoke the delegate with the parameters you got. Hmm. Right. And so you just to go popular. Yeah. Yeah. And then you would put it back in the cache and return to the caller the result. So is this this attribute basically gets called for every call and you have to say, oh, if it's this, if it's a call to the cache object, then I want to hook it? Or do you associate that with the cache call somehow beforehand? Uh, no, it, it would be on the, on the level of the... The user method. Okay, on the method. In this case, yes. All right. You so yes. so I I get it. So whatever whatever the user method is that's calling the cache object, that's where you decorate the attribute. Yes, and if you if you need uh, and and you well do you, do you tell it that this attribute applies to cache dot insert, for example? Like where where does that association get made in the attribute itself? The association between between what? Because cache.insert is just a framework call, right? It's not something you have the source yeah, to. Yeah, so this is, this, is, this is a framework call. You call the, uh, the ASP.NET cache if you use this or the, the cache from the enterprise library, for instance. Uh, so it's an attribute on the actual call to the method itself. It's, it's an attribute to the, to the user method. And in this attribute, you will call... You will call call the cache. It's quite. It's quite I, I still don't understand. Yeah. I, I still don't understand how how that gets associated with the call to cache dot insert. Let's say. Okay, how it gets how it gets associated with the with the with the method with the user method. Right. Yeah. No, not a user method. With the method that, like Richard's trying, Richard's trying to say, anytime in my code somebody calls cache dot insert. I want this code in the custom attribute to execute. How's that association made? Okay, uh, this no, this 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 would not work. Yeah, I mean, in this, this scenario, I'm I'm adorning the methods that would normally go to the database to get the data. Okay, and then <laughs> saying instead, I want an opportunity to populate a, a a check for the existence of a cache item. Oh, okay. Although. If I understand properly, using that uh, invocation technique, I could intercept the cache, any reference to the cache object, yes. if, I, if I really wanted to. I don't know that it would do what I want it to do, but there's definitely a way to go about that. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm feeling a little heady with power right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, I could get in and do and override anything. I mean, I think, I'm just thinking of the power of, uh, say you're, you're playing around with cryptography and there's some new amazing cryptographic uh, method out there that sometimes you want to be able to use that. And I've got existing code that's using the existing cryptographic libraries and it works just fine. I don't want to break it, but I'd like to add this new capability. So the fact that I could intercept 
calls to that cryptographic library. And then most of the time I would just pass it through on the interception to say, go ahead, run the original one. But when it re- requested this exotic new method, I would be able to jump off and use that other encryption method and then pull it back well, in. Well, you know, this interception is some, isn't anything new, but what's new is that now you don't have to change your bait. You don't have to make, you know, derived classes. Right. You, you can stay within the, the framework of the objects that you're using. You know, to do this with object or with, with inheritance, you basically derive from these base, your base classes and then you just make calls to your derived class. But that can be a problem, as we all know, when certain methods expect certain types and casting and all of that stuff sort of muddies the waters a bit. Well, and more, even more relevantly, when you have classes that are locked down and you just, you there's just no way to hook it, it that That's way. That's right. There's no way to do it. Yeah. So hooking it at the IL level just opens all that up. And of course, you can hook uh, sealed classes. Can you not? Sealed classes, yes, yes. Yeah. Because actually, what what it what it does when when the code is not in your assembly, for instance, it is it, uh, it is a, a framework method. It hooks the calls. It it does not modify the method. It hooks the call. Right. That's that's the magic here. Right. It's you're you're hooking the connection between the 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 methods. You're yeah. not actually hooking the methods themselves. Yep. I get Only it. on request. Yes, but um, I would uh, pay pay so pay attention not to you know to add behaviors to uh, to methods that that you do not define on your own uh, because you have to take care also to 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 keep code readability. Um, it is it is something to add logging uh, to all to all a namespace, but to change the result of a method. Because you just you just want something new is very dangerous because right. When you so what you're telling me is my cryptographic yeah. example is a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. We're just don't ever do this at home. We're just struggling <laughs> to find an example. Yeah, I agree with you, Gail. That, that the first thing I would do is use this capability to instrument. Yep. So that I can understand what's going on. Yeah. Very cool. Very very cool. And then. Uh, you can you can add behaviors that don't change semantics of your code. Don't don't make a, a method add multiplying, for instance. You can do it, but uh, it's a, it's quite stupid. But you can make uh, the add method transactional if you want. Let's talk briefly about post sharp for entlib. Yeah, post sharp for uh, for for entlib is a kind of glue to use post sharp with um, the the policy injection application block from the enterprise library. Okay. The so the injection policy application block is a NeoP framework. Also, it is it is shipped uh, with the with the enterprise library. It it has a, a lot of 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 aspects using the other application blocks. Uh, fully. Application library like logging, uh, transactions, uh, so exception management. But it comes with one technology for reading, and it is remoting proxies. That means that it will work only if your code uh, is derived uh, from the object marshaled by ref object. And this is this is quite a limitation because that means that you cannot use it with with uh, with existing code. You have to change you have to change so so every every class 
to make it inherit this. Uh, and if you don't want to derive your code uh, from Marshall by ref object, you have to uh, to expose interfaces explicitly. That's one problem, and, and so the other problem is that you 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 cannot use it with uh, private methods, uh, static methods, and so on. So so yes, but on the other hand, and it is it is a, a benefit uh, of this approach. You can do it at runtime. It means that when when the application is deployed, you can change logging policy or or the or the exception handling. With with PostSharp, you can uh, use this application block with any methods of of your of your program, so even static, even private. But it is done at compile time, so it will be faster, a little. It will work uh, with uh, all your methods, but statically done at compile time. It won't work, uh, so you won't be able to change it at runtime. Well, and this gets back to the original issue we were talking about, about being in process, out of process to invoke these aspects, that as soon as you're in remote proxies, you're incurring such a significant overhead for your work that it you're really undermining performance in a big way. Um. I see that it's a list of planned features in the in the show notes that you sent us. Support for Mono, the compact framework, assembly redirections, more aspects. Yeah. Want to talk about any of those? Or so support for uh, for Mono actually is uh, is done. Uh, PostSharp supports Mono. Mono doesn't support completely PostSharp. That's a, a second problem. Okay. Um, this is this is released. Uh, support for compact framework. Of course, PostSharp will not run on the compact framework because there is there is no compiler running on this platform. But we'll target comp- compact f- framework. That means that uh, you can make applications f- for the compact framework. Cool. Um, so, assembly redirection is more a technical detail that currently uh, you you cannot uh, transform an assembly using redirection between different versions of the .NET frameworks, for instance, from version 1 to version 2. Um, and it's a limitation when you use third-party components, which are still linked for the for, uh, for old frameworks. Mm-hmm. And um, I also plan to, uh, spend, um, to spend more time in, in performance improvement. So the first version was focused on the on the functionality, uh, the second one will make smarter code generation. It won't generate a catch handler if you don't implement on exception methods, for instance. Currently, it does. Okay. And uh, finally, there will be more ad hoc aspects, um, and I will take take profit of uh, feedback from the community. Um, What's the, community- the website? www.postsharp.org. Okay. And uh, user frequently asks, for instance, for a property level aspect. Right. And it's it's quite it's quite easy to do based on PostSharp core. Uh, just waiting for the next release, or for a dependency injection aspect. Okay, that's great. So, uh, any last minute? Uh things that you want to mention or shout-outs before we sign off? 
Um, looking at this, I think we, we have thought about everything. Gael, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. It's great stuff, and, and I hope uh, you get a lot of our fans testing it out and checking it out for you. Okay, thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the